0: 712
1: Welcome to The Absolute State, a podcast by the investigative shitposters at Left Coast Right Watch. Each week we'll bring you dispatches from the front lines of the absurdly dangerous to the dangerously absurd. I'm LCRW's editor in chief, Abner Hauge. At the end of October, I technically became a published author. I wrote a short essay for a book called No Passeran. Anti-Fascist Dispatches from a World in Crisis. Links to check out the book will be in the show notes. Shane Burley, who put the book together, invited me to speak at a panel for the book launch. Joining us was Shane's frequent collaborator, Alexander Reed Ross, who also wrote Against the Fascist Creep, and Mike Crenshaw, a recording artist and founding member of Anti-Racist Action in the 80s. We talked about history, current events, and what to do to combat fascism. Here's our conversation.
2: Thank you for joining us for tonight's event. We have three
0: conversation partners tonight, uh, which has never happened for me. Uh, My name is Stacey. I work on the events team here. So I'm really excited. Um, But I'm really excited to welcome Shane and his new book, No Pasarán. I hope I am saying that correctly. Um, it is an anthology of anti fascist musings that tackle a myriad of angles against the far right. And at risk of sounding pedantic, uh, for any of you that don't know, No Pasaran" is Spanish for They Will Not Pass, which, to our collective disappointment, has nothing to do with Gandalf and the Battle Rock. I'm just very disappointed about that one. Um, but, you know, No Pasaran" takes on new significance from its Spanish Civil War origins as an anti fascist slogan and rally cry. Perfect title for this piece, I think. Um, I wanted to read this to you guys, uh, Vicki Osterweil, Osterweil, I'm not sure, author of In Defense of Looting, A Riotous History of Uncivil Action, had this to say about Newcastran, quote, this is one of my favorite kinds of book, an indispensable resource for creating a world where it would be useless, close quote, uh, I absolutely love that, uh, Shane's other works on anti-fascism have been featured on NBC News, The Baffler, The Independent, and The Daily Beast. He will be joined in conversation today by Mike Crenshaw, a poet, hip-hop artist, educator, and activist. Alexander Reed Ross, a geographer, professor at PSU, and executive committee member of the Global Network for Research on the Far Right. And we also have Abner Hauge, founder-editor of Left Coast Right Watch. And I got his last name right, which I was really worried about. That's right. (laughs) This event will include an audience Q&A uh, following and a signing, so save your questions until then. We'll begin the line kind of over this way and towards the A uh, I would gentle remind you that we do close at 8.55 p.m. sharp this evening, uh, so without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to these guys. Thank you so much.
3: Thanks everyone that came out. Um, I had a kind of a weird message. Someone emailed me and asked why someone would need a book like this, um, and about a day or so after I had had gone away for Yom Kippur, and I came back to a flurry of angry messages uh, of people threatening to show up here, to try and cancel the book event, um, come to my home, things like that. Um, and that kind of proved the point of why we really need a book like this. Um, so the idea of this actually came right after I did my first book, when there was a lot of flurry, a lot of conversation about it. Some folks here probably were, you know, came to the earlier event, but there wasn't a lot of diversity in how we actually talked about anti-fascism. It was basically people black masks, they go out, they block roads, uh, and that was about the end of the story. So we wanted to talk to people, hear from folks who wanted to go international, want to talk about different ideas, mutually, community organizing, how people are experiencing this, what people are doing. Um, maybe what it will look like in the future, uh, because it's not all going to look like the same thing that we've seen on news reports and Portland streets and things like that. It's changing. The far right is growing and changing, and that means the fascists have to change likewise. So I wanted to bring three folks that did read chapters in this. I'm very, very different. So I'm going to kind of talk with them a little bit about what they wrote about, some ideas that, were, that kind of are simmering throughout the book, um, and then I'll open it up for questions. This goes fast, so um, we'll, we'll try and kick it over to folks pretty soon. So I was going to talk with you, Mike. Um, so we did this sort of like a, a conversation between us. Um, and Mike, you know, you were early founder of the Baldies, which is the anti-racist skinhead crew. And that might be confusing to some folks. I've never heard of an anti-racist skinhead group. They've heard of racist folks that call themselves skinheads. So, so what is it? Why did you form the Baldies, and what was the goal
4: of it? We were a group of friends uh, in the hardcore punk scene. Uh, initially, there was a group of us that were straight edge, so I needed to, because of my own issues with addiction, um, drugs and alcohol, I needed to find, find make some sober time in my life and reprioritize. What I was doing at the age of 15, 16, I uh, met a group of friends who were not getting high and drunk. Turns out that my biggest fear at the time was that my life was going to be boring if I wasn't getting fucked up all the time. And so to find some kids that were uh, in, a, in a intense music and skateboarding and, and, and really having as much fun as we could possibly have together without getting high, that was the initial. Um, so out of, out of necessity, a social necessity to change the type of people I was hanging with, uh, turns out that that group of friends had we we developed an interest in the skinhead style. We were curious about it. we didn't know what it was. We liked the aesthetic, and so we started to study it. Um, we started first with shaving our heads, but then other elements of the uniform um, became clear you know that traditionally we we were supposed to have Doc Martin boots because the style would come from working class kids in England. And there were certain elements to be an authentic skinhead, starting with the aesthetic, the look, the uniform. So as we started to uh, study this book, Skinhead, by Nick Knight, and catch word of mouth of other skinhead crews in other cities, and the right music to listen to, which ranged from ska to hardcore punk to oi, we started to notice that in the media, there was a lot of media coverage of neo-Nazi skinheads. So Sally, Jesse, Raphael, uh, Donahue, Oprah, Time, Newsweek were all highlighting and showcasing uh, neo-Nazi skinheads. So in the mind of the public, outside of our insular scene, people began to associate the term skinhead with neo-Nazis. Right about then, a group of uh, white supremacist skinheads called the White Knights popped up in our scene in Minneapolis. This is 80, 86, 87. Um, they were led by a local, uh, person who identified as skinhead, who also came out on the evening news as a member of the clan, um, the local chapter of the Klan. So once we found out about this, we found, we sought them out, we found them, we confronted them and we gave them a warning we said, if the next time we see you, if you're still claiming white power, then there's going to be problems. And from then the violence ensued and we had to organize within our community. Um, for community defense and our own safety. Because what would often happen at shows or in the neighborhoods was one of us would see them, we'd be outnumbered, we'd get jumped. And so this went back and forth. We fought for a number of years and then eventually we started to organize outside of our immediate community in Minneapolis in the South Hardcore Minneapolis, Harco-Punkstein, uh, with other cities in the Midwest. Madison, Wisconsin, Indian- Indianapolis, Indiana, um, Chicago was heavy, we were very tight with Chicago. Um, so that's, that's how the these came about. And I think that the, the political orientation and anti-fascism was something, it was us just responding to this element that arose in our community and us. Our identity was very clearly not racist because we're a group of multi-ethnic kids who loved each other. And so we, we also felt like we had to protect the brand of what we were doing Um, from this tidal wave of misinformation that was actually causing violent threats to our existence. I
3: mean, so it's almost like pre-political. People in their community, defending their communities before they're thinking about it like an activist scene, you know, trying to make those kind of campaigns, that kind of thing.
4: Right, and then, you know, being a black kid in a mostly white scene, even though a significant um, number of bodies were non-white, you know, it... The political nature of just being who I am um, was part of the response. And only later, when I started to get a political education in a more um, academic sense, was I able to correlate the choices that we made with broader, you know, deeper, longer historic movements.
3: How did that lead to the formation of anti-racist action? And for folks who don't know, anti-racist action, ARA, was sort of a, a preceding movement in kind of modern antifa groups. Really prominent here in the early nineties in
4: Portland, a big part of that history. So ARA was founded. You know, when we had to organize outside of our immediate friend circle for our own safety and protection, because now that there is this violent confrontation um, happening on a regular basis, day to day, week to week in the cities, in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul, um, we realized that there was a there was a core group of anti-racist skinheads that were fighting these neo Nazis. But we also wanted to build allegiances with people who weren't necessarily skinheads, who didn't wear the uniform, but who also wanted to get the Nazis out of the city. Okay, And so that that network, it started with our friends who were uh, also on the punk scene, um, anarchists, other punks that weren't skinheads, uh, skaters. Then it went to gang members from different ethnic gangs and the folks of people's nations. Um, and then it went to some older activists that might have been students and parts of different uh, formations that weren't involved in the punk scene. And then that spread from Minneapolis, St. Paul, again, to other cities in the Midwest. And we came to find out that simultaneous to our struggles in Minneapolis, these things were happening all over the Midwest and other cities, Detroit, Chicago, um Kansas City, and so on and so forth. And again, in retrospect, we start to see that these, these things are happening in the Reagan era because of the same thing that we see happening in this country today, which is late-stage capitalism, vanishing entitlement of the working class, white working class, getting into rage and anger and xenophobia and expressing themselves in the way that they do.
3: Yeah. I mean, there's a, a big thread through the book of subcultures and the rule that it's not just mass movements, but it's actually some subcultures. I mean, Sasha, you talk about that kind Of an earlier subculture. What, what's
5: surrealism? What does that have to do with anti fascism? All right, well, now for something completely different. Um, <laughs> so, surrealism is a lot like that punk movement, right? It's like a lot like that kind of a little bit pre political. The early surrealists were like uh, more on the anarchist side of things. They're really kind of like a romantic movement. They, they built up on the, uh, the Dreyfusard movement in France in, that was around the late 19th century. So this was a whole movement against anti-Semitism that had basically swept through France, and there were like anti-Semitic riots, and there was a groups of artists, literary figures, anarchists, socialists, who would come together... And they would have these raucous journals, these crazy plays. I don't know if you all know, like Pere Ubu from, uh, yeah, Ajari, uh, Guillaume Apollinaire, like there's a, Rimbaud a, and uh, Lautreamont. Like there's a lot of these kinds of poets and these uh, figures who were kind of breaking a lot of the rules of sort of society and of art. And that's what the surrealists built off of. But they came around after World War One in, like, a true situation of despair amid uh, an epidemic, a flu pandemic, right? Um, and so the thing that they wanted to bring to the world was a sense of what André Breton called mad love, right? They just wanted to break free of all the constraints and just, you know... Um, find another way of life, right? A a different theory of time where they could sort of break away from the things that would force them into lives that they didn't want to lead, right? And they would do this through poetry, uh, but also through really, really weird, weird stuff, like, just weird stuff. Like, they, they have had this whole thing called the, the time of the slumbers, where they would hypnotize one another, and then they would, you know, they would, like, there was one scene where um, a surrealist started chasing another one around the house with a, a knife. Um, there was another time when uh, a guy got three or four of them to, almost on the verge of hanging themselves. Uh, But that was where they stopped because it really did get really wild and kind of unfortunate. And that's kind of the thing about the Surrealists is that you have to understand that while they had this beautiful impulse and this amazing kind of life and this wonderful philosophy of life and of love, they were also like really problematic, right? (laughs) Like there was a lot of stuff about them that was like, uh, I wouldn't have done that, but like, we don't know because we're all kids sometimes. And, uh, and yeah, so they move on from this and they create this, this whole culture um, really around anti-colonialism, right? Because we're talking about France in the 1920s and they kind of disseminate all this stuff. Like they're saying outrageous stuff and um, being threatened by the far right. They're uh, getting into fights with one another, especially during the break with Dadaism, where Breton breaks a Dadaist arm on stage. Um, violent, violent people, actually, um, <laughs> uh, which is ironic because they're also full of so much love, but um, their, uh, their argument, uh, legitimate defense against colonialism, but not only against colonialism, in favor of fighting against colonialism, right, in favor of anti-colonial wars throughout the world, uh, ended up being uh, being um, suppressed by the Communist Party because it was it was too radical. Once they went over to the Communist Party, they said you can't talk about that stuff anymore. It's too radical. Um, but some people did hear what they were saying, and a whole journal in Martinique um, by uh, mostly black authors uh, formed called Legitimate Defense, uh, and they were saying, you know, we don't have a proletariat here in the colonies. So we have to speak to the, the learned classes, right? We have to speak to the professors and the doctors and we have to tell them, you know, like uh, that they're the bourgeoisie and they need to abandon their own families, you know, in a sense. So, you know, again, outrage, like they, everywhere they went, whether it was Martinique, whether it was the Cuban surrealists, whether it was the surrealists in Egypt who would ultimately be suppressed by Nasser, um, they just started all kinds of, of, uh, of, uh, turmoil. And in a way that's kind of what they thrived off of, you know, because obviously, you know, they're sensationalists, they're poets, they, they want to, you know, enrapture people and they want to draw people away from everyday life. And so for them, in a sense, it's kind of like an escape. They're trying to get out of the world and start a new one, right? It's a real revolution, um and and yeah, that was kind of their thing um that that was like the the sort of the the good, the bad, and the whatever of surrealism i don 't know yeah and then you must be wondering like what is surrealism right what were they even doing, and there are so many definitions of it, but I think that the one that makes the most sense is that they were trying to uh They were trying to bring their inner understanding of the outside world back into the outside world. Right. So that was their theory. And and it's so interesting. All their journals and their arguments and their debates within surrealism, their splits, um, all about trying to get to the truth. A lot of people think surrealism is about kind of trying to muddy the waters, confuse things, you know, uh, destroy reality, because this is surrealism. It's actually about understanding reality to the point of being sort of above it and of creating a new reality, right? The Derudi quote, right? The new world in our hearts, that sort of thing.
3: Yeah, and it has it's almost, I guess, the sort of pivot to Abner to talk about your work, just kind of this idea of truth telling. I mean, we know each other a lot from these really ugly scenes in sort of disaster zones in Portland streets not just Portland streets, other streets, of trying to cover, do what seems like a normal, productive job of doing journalism and having, you know, to wear bulletproof vests and things like that. Um, talk talk a little bit about your work, Left Post Right's Watch, how's it... How did it start, I
1: guess, and how is it a little bit different than the regular bourgeois press? The
2: bourgeois
1: press. That's a great question. Um, (laughs) I thought that was way funnier than other people did. Anyways, (laughs) yeah, so I I went to school at uh, UC Berkeley Grad School of Journalism. It was the worst two years of my life, mostly because like grad school usually is for most people. But on top of that, uh, there was uh, well, let me back up. So it was twenty twelve. I was, um, you know, let me back up further than that actually, because I've been thinking about this for a while. It was nineteen eighty five. It was actually uh, it was nineteen eighty eight, and um, my parents were about to get no, it was eighty. Yeah, 88. My parents were about to get married. they have me a year later. Um, and my white grandmother said he didn't, said, told my dad that she didn't, my mom's Pakistani. And my white grandmother told my dad that he, that she, um, didn't want my, um, dad to marry my mom because, um... She married her kids all off to, like, um, a a lot of, like, East Asian people for the most part because she thought they were smarter. And she thought that my mom was, like, genetically stupider, and so she didn't want my dad to marry my mom. So I've been, I I guess like Phil Collins said, as I was waiting for that moment all my life, oh, Lord. Um, Another thing that happened was basically, uh, it was 2012. 2012. And, um, one of my best friends, like, she, like, just come out, started dressing as a woman and, like, I mean, you know, subjective terms, right? But, like, she started transitioning, right? Um, and I had just moved up to the Bay Area. We grew up in Monterey and, like, you know, it's it's a liberal but very stuffy area, but she stayed at my apartment for a while because, like, she could, you know, have a safe place to, like, dr- you know, go out and get dressed and I'd drop her off at the BART station and she'd go on dates and go out and have fun in the city and, like, you know, be, like, live as a woman, basically. And, um, there was one one morning, um like, after she come back to my place like after like staying the night at somebody else's place uh, she, she um she told me like hey so I got there's I was getting on the Daily City train and there were these fucking guys these like Nazi skins that started catcalling me cause she was like wearing a black leather jacket and a skirt and shit and like you know, they wanted to hit on all the cute punk girls, right? But then, you know, they she hadn't started HRT or anything, so they got a closer look at her and started calling her slurs, and then she, I guess she told them, fuck you or something, I don't really remember. But she started running, um, like, through the fucking BART train cars while they were chasing her with a knife, and she got away, but, like, I... For about, like, five years, um, I just had this thought in the back of my head. I was like, I couldn't have done anything for her, and I wish I could have. And when I got to UC Berkeley, like, I would gotten really fucking high on protest coverage. Like, I was just, like, there was people burning like trash cans at the the night a few nights after Trump won in Oakland and it was like some of the most fun I've had covering shit. Which is kinda of cynical and dark to admit, but hey, I'm not gonna bullshit you people. But um this guy called Milo Yiannopoulos was coming to my campus and I didn't know who he was. Yeah, hiss. Please hiss at him. Fuck that guy. <laughs> And I figured out who he was. I, clearly, this crowd knows who that guy is. But um, the, the, my introduction to him was, like, looking up who he was and seeing the time he, like, put some trans girl's, like, photo on a big billboard, like, on his projector screen and, like, as big as this wall. And I just watched this footage of all these little fucking pieces of shit Nazi youth, like leering and jeering at her and smiling with their little fucking perfect white teeth and I just knew I had to fuck this guy over somehow (laughs) (laughs) and it was a weird year because I kind of end up failing that mission in a way Um, so basically what I did was I said I, I took the like UC Berkeley, very liberal program, obviously. You know, they're like, oh, you have to be very both sides and, you know, cover everybody and be very fair to everybody. So I kind of just weaponized that. And I kind of just like went up to the Berkeley College Republicans and was like, can I just like film all of your weekly meetings (laughs) And they said yes because they were so happy for the attention. (laughs) And I started making this documentary where like week after week, they bring in all these crazy people. There would be people in that class plotting all of the like street fights that happened in Berkeley. Like just fucking planning them in those meetings. And then I would go to the street fights and film them. And then I'd meet people there, and everybody was just thinking, oh, I'm a kind of like libertarian leaning, like, you know, just dumb Berkeley journalism student. Like, I'm just like this wide eye. You know, I'm I'm very good at doing the like, I'm a, I'm a, a, I'm very naive, which is, which is like, you know, because I'm very naive, actually. But yeah, so, sorry, I'm rambling, but, but, um, I spent the fucking year, um doing the documentary i did for my thesis which kind of i've never been able to put it out for you know documentaries cost way too much money reasons um but basically the year went by i got to uh, i gained the trust of these little fuckers and some of them admitted, yeah um some of our members are like actual neo-nazis and like, look at pictures of Hitler's generals on their phone, think how cool they are, and, like, talk about wanting to nuke Israel in the group chat, and we've had to ban a few of them, and stuff like that. And I basically got what I wanted, which was to prove that they were all fucking Nazis, and that's why they invited Milo's, because they wanted to hurt, like, brown and black and trans and, like, everybody else kind of people, you know? Um So, yeah, that never panned out. Um, UC Berkeley kind of fucked me over and censored my film um, and like you know because our mate Dylan the um, lawyer for she's like a top like California Republican party figure and like a she was a lawyer for the Berkeley College Republicans at the, at the time like she kind of like threatened the dean and like they fucked me over and I, my film never went anywhere and I, my berge, my bridges were kind of like pre-burned going out of Berkeley I wasn't going to have a professional fucking journalism career very easily through the connections that they sell you on when you go to the program so I just started like working as a Lyft driver and um, continuing the beat because it's like well what else I'm going to do Like just and then that kind of just snowballed from there I just like started a blog I fucking went to these protests eventually I got made and I had to be way more careful about it and um, I just like kept reporting and reporting and reporting and just like I I look back at the early LCRW articles and they're just like oh well these people like had a fucking like these fucking violent Nazis had a Christmas toy drive and I covered it in minute detail probably because I'm on the spectrum and like I I just yeah I just did like fucking 2000 words on them doing a Christmas toy drive where they yelled at like a couple of Berkeley high school kids why did I do this and and then years of that had passed and passed and passed and I was kind of like when when all of the COVID conspiracy theory shit happened like I was like oh oh it's these people doing this and um I was luckily in a position where like I made a little bit of money through selling some artwork and shit and um the i was able to just devote 24 7 to lcrw and just like live alone in my apartment for a while and like just report on these covid fucking nazis and like these covid coupes and stuff and like yeah it kind of just blew from there what's the question again <laughs> <laughs> <I don't>
3: remember. <laughs> Now, I wanted to hear just about how you guys started with it because it's been sort of foundational and broken a ton of big stories with it. And I think it's like we kind of had these weird surreal experiences of things getting more dangerous over time. And it's you know, we used to go with big group reporters to a lot of these far-right events and walk right in. No one would give us a flack. I would go in and have my, my, my press pass. We could see my name. We could see my face no problem. That is not the case anymore. Uh, I don't know, how has it changed for you over time? Or Well, Saja.
5: For me? Um, I, yeah, I, I can't, I, I don't really like report on uh, the far right on the ground anymore. Um, ever, I, I really, I, I like, I got assaulted by a Proud Boy on Main, right there. Um, In 2018 or 2019 or something like that, pulling him and, like, five other dudes off of this anarchist that they were stomping on the ground, Um, that was a pretty intense moment. And uh, I don't know if after that I've I've really gone that far out there. I mean, maybe I have, but just not to sort of observe and report. I don't know. But, yeah, it's been pretty... Pretty gnarly around here, <laughs> <laughs> y'all. <laughs> I mean, it, it feels like a moving target. So after, directly after the election, when
3: Stop the Steel rallies first of started, you know, I went up to cover for NBC at uh, in Vancouver, um, and immediately some motion members came up pointed at ar 15, said to me, and said, don't even fucking try it." You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, there wasn't like an argument. It wasn't like, "Hey, look at this guy." It was just like, "Hey, you come in here, we're
5: gonna <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I, I did do. I I went to. Um, Olympia, no, 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 sorry, 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 Um, Salem. I went to Salem with Joe Lowndes, who's a really great writer uh, on uh, the far right and teaches over at the University of Oregon. Um, And I was just stopping on my way back to Portland. They had a rally. There was like Black Lives Matter people on one side of the street and the far right on the other side of the street. And I went and I talked to some of these guys on the far right. One of them had a gun. And I was like, why do you have that? Like, why are you here? And he's like, you know, communism, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, you know. And, uh, and, and he's like, we're just here to make sure that they don't do anything. You know, like, I'm happy to be here. They have the right to protest. You know, we're just here to, to, to you know, be the, the, the you know, sp- chaperones or something. And then I, I, like, turn my back for, like, five minutes. I'm not even kidding, y'all. Like, five minutes. And it's just like... Boom, right in the middle of the street They're just going at it This girl's getting beaten up by the right wingers And the dude who had just told me He wasn't there for violence at all He's just like snarling And he's like got this joy in his eyes I just couldn't believe like This guy is just like Invigorated and excited About the violence That's happening right now And he just told me that he wasn't there for that You know And he's armed I don't know People are like this is my rationale and this is what I'm doing and then you know, they snap right into some other parallel universe. And I still don't know if that's because that's what they wanted all the all along, or if it's just because people snap. I don't know.
3: I think there's an element well, a little bit above there's always this logic that they're actually here doing defensive things, that they're here because someone's someone's attacking them. You
5: know.
1: Well, I mean it's I mean that's kinda of, they're You know, it's really ugly to say, but, like, violence feels really good. Violence, like, hurting people, like, if you get used to it, it feels fucking amazing. So, I think the core of it is, like, yeah, a lot of these people really, really, really want a fix of that. They want to hurt people. And I, you know, after, like, Five years of seeing them hurt people, I kind of just think like that's the core of it. They want a fucking boot on everybody's neck and they want to hurt people, and everything else is just window dressing.
3: You know, I was, uh, so on my way over here, I was listening to It Did Happen Here, your podcast that you put together. Um, and so, folks don't know, this is a multi episode podcast uh, in conjunction with KBU, right?
4: Mm. I'll put it together. It's a, yeah. it's a It Did Happen Here podcast net I believe it's available online, and yes, cable and the, the
3: book version is coming out here like yeah. real quick, right?
4: Yeah, hopefully, this spring the book will be this spring or next fall. It will be out. Right.
3: So, so, it's sort of looking at the history of the 90s here in Portland Coalition for Human Dignity and every stash of other groups um, that had a very familiar history uh, to what we kind of went through recently. You know when you're putting that together, you're thinking about this history. What are you thinking about anti-fascism now? What do you, I guess, what would you like to see? How are you feeling about what you see going on now? What do you think about the future?
4: I think what's changed the most uh, is the digital uh, imposition of, of device dependency, social media, um, digital consumption, surveillance, culture. So everything that happens now happens on, on camera, not only do... Places of business and private residents have cameras everywhere that you can't see, um, but people are stopping, you know, somebody could be getting stomped out and people, instead of intervening, they're going to sit there and film. Um, So that that has a lot of implications. Um, Things that we used to get away with doing um, become viral. So the the criminalization of self-defense and community defense is something that we have to be aware of, the far right fascists have always been able to rely on the state, and the state, you know, the police, the, the military, and other armed, deadly aspects of the state have always been uh, in solidarity with with the far right. So that gets utilized against those who are anti-fascists all the time. It gets utilized against people of color. Um, any marginalized, you know, non-white, non straight people are always on the front line and always vulnerable. Um, the other thing that happens is the, the left is on some <clears throat> pretty sickening bullshit when it comes to uh, this, this urge to tear each other apart and get stuck in egotistical, self-righteous um, patterns of behavior, um, doing the enemy's work for them. So that is picked up by social media and weaponized against us quite effectively. And then, uh, you know... Honestly, you know, in the 80s, you know, so, like, there's there's, there's these things that people say, like, they'll show a picture of, of, of some soldiers in World War II, and they'll be like, well, my grandfather fought in World War II, and he was anti-fascist, but if we're honest, you know, the United States Empire has always been fascist, right? So, you know, ever since the southern the colonial conquest of European powers and genocide of natives and enslavement people, you know, there's always been a fascist empire, so... Uh, that said, fascism has always been mainstream, but in the 80s and 90s, you know, when we were anti-racist skinheads and the baldies in ARA, it was more fringe. The violent element was more fringe, the violent element is more mainstream today. Um, so it's not so much counterculture and people with certain uniforms that you can identify as much as it is just everyday, you know, people. Yeah. Well we should
3: go to the questions very quick. I just wanted to I guess get you two at the end. You know. We're, we're coming up against the um, We're coming up uh, against the election. There's big new far right, stuff looks a little bit different. How are you seeing it change in the next few months? What what are you seeing?
1: Wait, yeah, yeah.
5: Me, I I tend to uh, uh, focus sometimes on, like, political ecology. We're out in Oregon and a lot of land use issues, and I'm seeing a lot of conflict between the federal, like, uh, uh, Forest Service versus, like, the right-wing sheriffs in, like, uh, uh, various counties uh, in uh, rural Oregon. So, um, you know, there's got to be a lot of change that's going to happen with all these wildfires, And all that kind of stuff. And and so, you know, folks in rural areas are going to, you know, be met with some restrictions on what they can do and can't do on uh, private land and public land and stuff like that. And they don't like it very much. And so I'm seeing that kind of escalating right now in Oregon. I think that especially if the sort of balance of power doesn't really shift that much after November, I think that that's going to get Bundy type. You know, situation happening here in the next couple of years. I don't know.
1: Abner, what are you kind of seeing? I mean, there's one. I, I think there was uh, what what county? I mean, there's a few counties that Mallier or er, like kind of um, touches borders with, right? Grant County. Yeah, I think Martin, I, yeah. I think it was Marnie and Grant. Um, I think it was the. I just read this last night. There's a sheriff who arrested somebody who was doing, like, a controlled burn out there, right? Yeah. Like, somebody who's, like, a BLM employee. A Bureau of Land Management, <laughs> not Black Lives Matter for the folks at home. Um, you have to specify these days. Well, yeah, you do have to specify these days. I mean, that's something interesting locally. I mean, I think the Bundy's network over the entire um, western half of the United States is really needs to be... Paid attention to. I talked to a lot of folks, um, out in like, uh, you know, Ashland Medford area, like, um, where, where the, um, I, correct me if I'm wrong. It's, uh, the Yurok tribe, right? And there's, um, I, am sorry. I forget the name of the other tribe. Cause I, Hoopas? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what are they called again? The Hoopa, the Hoopa right? I, I don't know if I'm saying that right. I apologize if I'm not, but, um, there's been like continuing like um kind of settler colonial echoing conflicts over there over like um their their right to keep um their their right to keep maintaining the kinds of sucker fish that they eat and um that i feel like can i feel like a lot there's a lot of issues like that all up and down um Like this half of the United States that can be kind of turned on and off like a valve whenever there's like the right kind of like um, grievance. Mm. Um, One other thing that's very, very disturbing that I'm going to be paying a lot of attention to in the next months is the great state of Arizona. Um, I'm sure folks have seen a lot of the videos of um, men with guns watching... Ballot drop box locations. I think that's going to get really ugly. I'm actually going to go down there um, and help cover it uh, during election week. So it's, I I, I really think, like, kind of as a bellwether, Arizona really needs more prominence, like, for just people who want to know what's going on in this field. Um, And yeah, that that's a big thing. I mean, obviously, the other thing we should talk about at some point is like all of the libs of TikTok fueled like um, attacks on um, LGBTQ plus spaces, et cetera, et cetera. But and that's there was just um, one this weekend in Eugene. Right, right, right. Um, we're actually going to have an article up about it. And um, uh, I, I don't want to, and I'll, I'll, you can read it later. I won't. Diverge anybody's attention for it but yeah
3: why don't we to some questions uh for some of the rest of the time if folks just want to shoot their hand up i'll go go on order i brag so, um so I'm University of Oregon. i've heard some good origin stories here from the Berkeley um from the, back the 80s and 90s and other things have done but the UBA, you were a great like kind anniversary thing you have, of course with journalism but how did you get into this kind of political system that exceeds so quickly? Like, how did you start out that process? That's an interesting question. Um, I did it back then. Um, I, I guess I had a, a stepping stone. Um, so when I got out of graduate school, um, I had I – was, I was actually a tech blogger for, like, five years. Um, and then um, – and so then I wanted to stop doing that because reviewing iPhone apps is the worst job. <laughs> I will not force that <laughs> on my hands. Um, and so um, I was covering um, like housing organizing and stuff because I did housing organizing and, and labor stuff because I had done that too. So um, I was doing that. And actually, it was, it, there was an incident with um, uh, this really famous Holocaust denier, who I am totally blanking from the right now, Irving. Irving. Um, Irving had actually come out to where I was at. I was in upstate New York. He'd come out to the street views which was right down the road. Um, and the kind of scams that they kind of run... Actually, you have an extra episode in your podcast that actually mm-hmm. talks about this as well. And... Um, basically they'll hire like a kind of private space and then basically they won't tell the, the, the venue owner who it is, what it is, until it's too late and then they have a choice to make. They can try and kick these people out, they already put their deposit in, it could get them sued or they let this go on and they basically didn't protect it. And that's, that's fundamentally what happened and so when that was going on, I was trying to make sense of it, to do an article, and this was like 2010, 2011, and I found this podcast by this guy named Richard Spencer, and I was like, I just have a feeling, i got a I feeling this is going to be a thing, so I just kind of tracked that and started uh, writing on that. It wasn't until about 2015 I actually started doing a lot of professional work on it, um, and then made that sort of the big movie. And the, to be honest, it felt manageable for a while, and then the world exploded, and it became unmanageable, <laughs> and, and not something one person or a dozen people or 500 people could actually monitor. So that was kind of the, the, the,
4: the pathway of it. Um, so I know you have said about uh, red-brown alliances and uh, like, like the sort of anti anti uh decision some leftists have taken in and um, you know, some left figures appearing on top of Charleston yeah. and so do you, you you see that affecting movements on the ground or anything or, or, or are any, you just looking at what we should be looking
3: that's a, I mean those people just don't feel like they're on the ground they feel right. like they're very online uh, complaining about stuff on, on Twitter. Um
5: Larouche on the ground. Some leadership and mm-hmm. the
3: random lines is something you've thought I think hear about Sasha.
5: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think about it sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh,
3: I think you mean like people like Greenwald to the world, mm-hmm. the kind of anti-PC left. Um, you know, a lot of I think the ground that they've had is like the stuff that Mike's talking about is actual bad behavior that gets called out. You know, people being obnoxious and spaces, things like that, and then they just go through the stratosphere with it. You know. Um, and that's they they've built like, entire careers off this screen because it's not much different than your normal average right wing kind of anti-PC complaining culture um, but I haven't seen it really change that much in actual like activist circles I don't know, what
1: do you think? I mean I don't think it so I don't think it's like going to be putting for for, like a crude term is it's not putting bodies on the ground but I think what's happening is red brown politics it's very it's very very organized around disseminating information being an influencer networking with different kinds of media Mm. and that since you know the term parasocial relationship and you know podcasting and like intimate kinds of media has become like through the internet have become like a big thing that's um that's that's because that's where its strength is right like you like there's there's a bunch of nice people i know that listen to chapo but and frankly like before i like you know became a more i, I kind of listened to them myself for like when i was in grad school and then i realized oh wait these guys are kind of reactionary I and mean, fuck these guys but it's um you know the the game is to move the needle right the game is kind of like the pushing the overton window thing right where you're not you don't care about like getting bodies at a rally to counter somebody and, like, claim a military or strategic victory or anything. The game is, like, if I can make... Like, if you can make normal DSA members a little bit more racist, you're fucking winning. And that does happen. Like, there's this huge... um, I'm not as well-versed in it as I should be, but there's this big controversy right now about, like... Um, the about racism in the Los Angeles DSA, like there's just been I, there's this guy I know who's like, um, kind of a cop watcher guy who just kind of baited a bunch of their leadership into just saying racist shit and like calling them out on their racist shit and like they just refuse to be accountable for it, and I kind of think that like there's there's some red brown tentacles that maybe not made them push the button and, like, decide to be racist today. But, you know, that pushes people in that direction.
3: I mean, yeah, I thought also, like, like you yeah, know, this is Portland. It is the home of weird ideas. Like, just really, and I you know, I've been around some circles with just really, really strange ideas. And so, you know, environmental movement, I've heard all sorts of weird ideas about you know, population, you know, anti-immigrant ideas, stuff like that. So I think, like, that in a way, like, those things are always there. I don't know that, that that scene is actually that different than it was you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Those people kind of creep their way in. Uh,
1: there's a question over that way.
3: You said earlier that you expected things to get like Bundy in the next few years. What do you mean by that?
5: Like the Bundy rants, people kind of like... Uh, sovereign citizens, patriot movement type of stuff, becoming more resistant within sort of rural strongholds and uh, trying to sort of provoke kind of uh, an incident that could lead to sort of cascading insurrection. Because that's what they tried to do, right, in 2014, I guess, um, was they tried to make the Bundy Ranch into a stand that would then be generalized around the country where you would have uprisings, uh, armed uprisings of right-wing kind of uh, conservative revolution type of thing against the, the liberal federal government, right? And so that would be uh, uh, probably a scenario in light of what Abner's talking about with the, um, I don't know why I'm doing this, uh, with, with the uh, uh, Clark County? Clark, I think it was Clark County um yeah, either
1: Clark or
5: burn boss who got Byrne boss who got arrested by the sheriff It's actually a funny tidbit is that this sheriff who did it um, McKinley um, was uh, actually considered the liberal sheriff when he ran because he was deposing a constitutional sheriff uh, who was in place before then so this is I don't know if he's moved a little further to the right or or what, but.
3: The whole state GOP has moved further to the right. It's a really, really out there extremist fringe version of the Republican Party. Okay, right there. Oh, I don't know. I feel like you're reclaiming a shirt over there. What's that? Like you're taking a shirt back. Taking the shirt. Oh, me, how
2: are we? No, this, this was ours first. <laughs> 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 they tried to take it from not... us. <laughs> That's all, I'm, I'm, but I'm not giving it. to. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: how are you trying to target your journalism to people who aren't necessarily leftists, but would be still, like, receptive to your message? Like, liberals who haven't been exposed to anti-fascism yet, or people who just, in general, aren't aware of what's going on? Like how do you how do you target
3: your journal on to make capital team? I think it's also a question beyond journalism. It's just how you talk to pay folks in general. You know, Mike, do you have thoughts on that?
4: Yeah, I mean there there was um there's a lot of discussion around the tension between what gets defined as Antifa um, as a monolith in the media and black community members, which also get defined as a monolith and in you know, if we if we believe in the in the, the mythology of the monolith, then we have a bunch of white kids in block who want to break shit, but who don't understand <clears throat> nuance of what to break and what not to break. And then we have a bunch of conservative uh black folks who don't want to be revolutionary um because they're complacent in, in whatever like middle class privilege they might have attained or something like that. Um, that's kind of a shallow analysis. I think the the deeper complexity is of class, privilege, culture, all these things that somebody like me would like for us to be able to see the common interests that we share um, and be unified in our approach. But there's always, you know, too many opportunities to exploit the vulnerabilities of nuance. Mm. Um, but so that just says that there's a ton of work there. So you know the, the comment you heard my frustration earlier when I talked about the way that the left eats itself. Um, an old revolutionary when I was complaining about this about 15 years ago at a conference said to me you know Mike we never tried to organize the left we tried to organize the working class. And I thought hmm that's a very simple but powerful statement and It let me know that I have to focus my efforts on not always trying to convince people um, on the left that, you know, they're doing it wrong Mm -hmm. and figure out how to talk to people who don't necessarily identify as left and and be like, what can we do together?
3: I I was interviewing uh, a Hasidic Jew this morning and we were talking a little bit about this break and the inability to talk about the hard to to the quote unquote ultra orthodox Jews. And it, what it was was about language. He's saying, you know, words like revolution, um, political words, like those are scary. They're not just scary, they're alien. They feel like something totally out there. But we do know what mutual aid is. We do do that. Like we do actually care for each other, and we do actually care about the world. So if you can talk to people about what you actually mean and what this is actually about, and you can drop some of those signifiers, um, the reality is that a lot of like, you know, rural folks that get pulled into those those sort of like militia groups, in their community, they are more engaged than the average urban liberal. They're more likely to take care of their neighbor if they're being evicted, take care of their farm if they're having troubles, like they're used to doing that. Like, I don't know my neighbors very well, like I don't know if I'm there to go take care. So that, that's a real fault in us, but I think it's about... Communicating the exact same message and sort of bypassing some of the things that they're going to try to knock off, or the things that will stop them from listening, or that might disengage them.
1: I think the main thing is um, it's very cynical again, but I think we have to look at the way right wingers succeed in funneling, like like appealing to specific groups of people with specific grievances and specific <coughs> interests. And, um, you kind of have, and they're very good at like saying, okay, well, this part of our program benefits you in this way, and it pushes your agenda forward. And, um, and I kind of think, and uh, at LCRW, we kind of do that already. Like, do we try to have broad appeal to like just people who are interested in anti-fascist work and like most of them are like anarchists yeah and that's most of who reads the site but we also have like a lot of people who are just in like you know liberal ngos who are terrified that they're getting harassed we have a lot of people who are like just in democratic party organizations who are like oh we need to understand these guys because like we don't want You know we don't want to lose our foothold of power like and we've also got a lot of like national security and like CV and all those other types of people who like you know for a lot of understandable and probably appropriate reasons a lot of anti-fascist researchers turn their nose up at those kind of people and I it's not like we trade information with them but we do things that appeal to them and they see that you know the work we do is valuable and you know like i i think like i i think you know that does help move the needle and it is really like about we need to think strategically we need to think about the Overton window right
2: this is such a great conversation. I think the far right has a big advantage because they're organizing to propagate ongoing horrific pressure. Mm-hmm. People on the left, anti-fascists, are organizing for a new world. Right? And I think the reading I've done and what I've learned is the far right strategy produces low wolves, right? One awful young man and murder people in a supermarket, and make waves for the far right all around the world. Our whole culture alienates and isolates us. So how do we organize in ways that produce acts, right? Where we can make waves that really push the window, things on the street, things at the college we work at, whatever. You know, it's like, that's all we're that looking for. So I'm just, what do you see for the best strategy to push us into a
3: pack? Well, there's this book I know of
2: that talks about <laughs> 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 <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: um, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, the, the, mo- the reality is that the kind of community offense that people think of when they think of anti-fascism is a stopgap. Uh, it's the you know, survival pending revolution. It's, it's what you do now because people need to be safe. And to actually do any kind of big organizing, they have to be safe as well. I mean, you know, if you're doing these kind of mutual aid groups that we saw pop up around COVID, Um, They they were attacked by the far right. You know, when the fires were happening in 2020, a lot of these mutual aid groups and groups that formed around the BLM protests, they went to try and support, you know, folks in rural areas, and they were having cars searched at gunpoint under some kind of conspiracy notion that they were in fact starting the fires. Mm -hmm. So you have to protect people, and that's sort of an absolute, um, that's sort of like a starting point, but the reality is that this comes from somewhere, and it can keep coming back unless you look at the, un, the fundamental underlying conditions of society and see what is it can change there. And I think that's, in the long run, what we're talking about here is that you're going to have to actually offer something different. You have to offer people something.
4: I also want to say that uh, what made what we did as youth effective was the fact that we were best friends and we had a level of love and camaraderie. Um, but we... You know, the 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 harsh realities of having kids and being full-time workers hadn't become so dominant in our lives. And right now, a lot of us are siloed just because of the nature of overcommitment and we don't have time to have those kinds of relationships. But I also don't see a lot of youth in this room. So, you know, we have some work to do in terms of encouraging our young people to have the kinds of friendships and the kinds of bonds where they're not on the screen and they actually... Physically hang out with each other. They leave the house and they have each other's backs and that's important
5: Yeah, I think so too just to jump on that I also uh, When I was doing this research on Surrealism and also just being inspired from Mike and Abner Having kind of that ethic of like nobody's gonna help us do this. So we'll do it ourselves Right just reading about Surrealism I was just kind of inspired by a similar vibe of just like, just going out there and doing it, like you know, putting on plays or or doing movies or doing like music or you know doing your art and just like you could do that. You you, you know believe in yourselves. You have to. Uh, that's what it's all about. You know, not believing in some guy or like oh you know some uh, hierarchical political movement. Like believing in ourselves and being inspired to do. What we want to do, uh, which is make a better world.
3: That's a
2: good hand there.
1: Um, I just wanted to ask I think um, my parents are like pretty center left, so I find it really hard to talk to them about this kind of stuff sometimes because they have this kind of flawed theory of attention where like if you ignore the crowd voice, they'll just go away, or something like that. And I feel like you hear that sentiment a lot from people that are maybe sympathetic, but are certainly not. Uh, to the crowd boys, but they are not understanding of like the need to confront or otherwise encounter like, counter protest. So, what, what kind of? What, I guess my question is kind of like, what, what do you say to someone who thinks that like if you ignore it, it'll go
3: away? I mean, we're lucky there because we actually have evidence about this. There's like times when we ignore them but it didn't go away, and times in which we didn't ignore them um, and we were successful. It's actually pretty black and white in a lot of cases, and I don't mean you know, um, I think rushing in half-cocked and and, and thinking that every situation is the same. But but approaching it in a proactive way, um, in a community organizing way, one that gets the community together, that is effective. Um, So um, on the way here, I didn't see Patriot Prayer blocking the entrance, you know, that might not have happened two years ago. And it's because there was like, and I don't mean it was just like 100 people on black. It was like thousands of people. People who had some of those protests, they overwhelmed the entire city and shut it down. Um, and that made it impossible for them to keep organizing and recoup members, and it became really costly for the members to be in there, and it basically you know, funneled down to the organization. And that kind of disruption makes it so it's hard. Um, there's this sort of little argument that they want to play the victim and that that helps them, but the reality is that when they're shut down, it does not help them. Like if it, What they want is functional organizing that can show results, so...
1: Um. yeah we're going to get to that one next but um, yeah I, 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 I kind of wanted to ask so your parents I assume that they're still alive right Yes. okay they're still alive and they lived through the last four years and they still think like this unfortunately then it's about something else it's and this is really common it's like I kind of went through this with my parents is like you know what they go like why do, why do you cover these people and it's like because they're going to hurt people and they already are hurting people and when and you kind of just have to like have them have a personal connection to it sometimes to get them to see because people don't just think with a reason right like some this, this is kind of like a thing that you're, is a useful tool in your pocket for activism I I'm not an activist, I'm a journalist disclaimer but a useful tool in activism is in general is like remembering that people aren't totally rational and you can't just appeal to them with a reason I mean, if you know if they're, you're on their, if they're on your side. Like you have to underst- you have to like go to where they are mentally, and then bring them to where they should be, if you can. One more question, okay? It should be, it should be that one. Form a okay. small comment because that's something else. Right core of the Proud boy okay. wires getting into a physical fight with the counter protesters. Tell them how they rank up. It's involved in getting tattoos, getting the fist fights. It's a street gang. Like, if you're concerned about Proud they get into fights for levels. So they're like RPG characters, they're
3: Liberals were so scared about gangs in the 90s, but they yeah. seem to the Proud Boys They're also a terrorist organization
2: for Canada and New Zealand, where the founders from, Canada and New Zealand. So, like, just tell your parents that there are terrorists as far as New Zealand and Canada goes,
3: and, like, force them into this fight. That's your That's what one. Yeah, Yeah. right. Can you talk a little bit about the class composition of the far right and the internal class conflict that exists between members of the kind of people that can afford to fly the DC on January sixth on the wind uh, versus normal people that couldn't. Is that on me?
5: Oh I I got the other side, yeah. Yeah workers. What's that? Talk about workers workers. Yeah, t- t- I mean, totally so workers.
3: I think what you're getting at is that they're not exactly the blue-collar workers they present themselves to be, and that is actually true. Statistically, mm-hmm. Trump supporters are not like the in the lowest economic tiers um, for various obvious reasons, uh, larger percentage of business owners, things like that. Um, I I think, in the broader sense, you don't have a mass movement without having non kind of rich people involved. There is people that are kind of working class, like the classic Marxist definition, you know, the people that work for a wage or they're, you know, penny much They're not people living in mansions generally. Uh, And a, a mass movement to be threatening has to have a mass. So there is an appeal happening in areas of the white working class. These are the privileged sectors of the working class. They're having real class angst be re-channeled onto marginalized folks. So it's real experiences of dispossession being channeled onto other folks who aren't responsible for it. You see this with like you know, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories all the time. People are concerned about very real things. Their mortgage rates going up, they're losing their home, they're losing their job. Who's responsible? It seems like this abstract rich person, someone gave me the story about the Rothschilds, it must be them. Um, and so this seems like it's an easy answer because he explained to them that you actually have a lot more interests um with the black workers you work next to i have more interests i have more shared interests with the houses encampments that live in my neighborhood than i do with the rich people that own the large apartment complexes um acknowledging that seems easy but we're talking about deep ideology that people are working through and privilege really does blind people to what i think is the alternative, which is solidarity, which is actually power. That's actually powerful. Um, And that's why I say we have to give them something, because when you give people actual power, they don't want that anymore. They actually want to have a liberated life. They want to have connections with communities. They want to actually win something.
4: It's tough, because I I think in the the absence of of real power, uh, people are blinded by emotion. People are blinded by fear. People are blinded by rage. People are blinded by ignorance. And when you combine those things... That's when violence actually feels powerful, right? Because mm-hmm. it's all you have.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, there's there is kind of the distinction between the violence of the oppressed and the oppressor, right? You know, there's this idea that like, I mean, there's people who are very poor that do violent, awful things because it's a way of reclaiming their power, but there's also people who you know, feel that, like, there were that their, you know, where they get ahead in life is, like, you know, the, the norm that should exist and always should exist, and, um, you know, if that gets threatened away, it feels the same to them as somebody who's poor and powerless. That's, how, that's just how they feel, and so, you know, the violence comes from there. But it also comes from a place of, like, I'm afraid that this is going to ta- get taken away from me and, like, the people who I took it from are going to fuck me over, t- or too. So, you know... I... Yeah, Vi- I mean, violence is complicated, read Fanon. That's all I can say.
5: <laughs> and, I, and I think, uh, just to, to jump on my surrealism... Uh, Horace, real quick again. Um, I think one of the the sort of profound elements of that artistic sort of subculture and movement is the fact that they believed in the proletariat in an anti-authoritarian context in a sense that the authoritarian left didn't understand and didn't except because they had this collectivist understanding in the abstract of the working class and the proletariat. And the Surrealists were saying proletariat are humans. They're not just a block, Mm -hmm. right? And when we can connect to our liberation collectively, then we can actually move forward as a revolutionary proletariat, if I'm going to use a scary term. Um, But if we're just a a, a kind of abstract block that depends on the authority of another then we're being disempowered and you know so the role of art in society is to you know speak directly to human beings right um, and, and um, to understand the class content as an essential part right but, but not the end of it all you know it's really? about empowerment there's this like, celebration of the working class as this almost like moral category, but it's
3: not human beings with bad ideas and good <laughs> ideas. And unless you're ready to come in there and talk to them, you're not doing the organizing work because an actual change in society requires definitionally on majorities of people. Like you literally actually have to organize with large majorities of people, and that means. Confronting those and finding a way through it. It does not mean giving everyone a pass on bullshit or uh, you know avoiding you know protecting communities from history, But it does have that kind of larger like how are you actually going to address these issues? Um, because those are the people you have to deal with.
1: What? What is a man but a miserable little pile of secrets? <laughs> what?
5: <laughs> All right, we're, we're, we're getting clouded out. Um, I think you, you want to introduce. Uh, yeah, Sorry.
1: Thanks so much, thanks everyone in. for coming out. And you if so, yeah. well, you're through here, they'll be glad to sign your books. And that's it for this week's edition. But before we sign off, some housekeeping announcements. I'm doing a fundraiser for travel to do election coverage in Arizona the week of the eighth. Link to that in you guessed it, the show notes. Also, you can come by and say hi to me personally the weekend before Thanksgiving at Reno Punk Rock Flea Market. That's the 18th and 19th in beautiful Sparks, Nevada at The Generator. We'll be tabling next to Trucky Meadows' John Brown Gun Club and have the very first Tales from LCRW zine for sale, along with exclusive stickers. Check out rprfm.org for more info. The Absolute State in all Left Coast Right Watch journalism is supported by listeners and readers like you. If you want to help, you can set up a recurring donation at patreon.com slash lcrw or check out our pinned tweet at lcrwnews on Twitter your donations keep the lights on and so does your feedback and sharing our stories with others thanks again to all our supporters until next time don't despair prepare 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. The ladybugs came to the ladybugs picnic.